Good evening, everybody. I'm grateful that you're here tonight. Kind of a dreary day, dreary evening. We got a little bit of rain. Grateful for that. How was the food tonight? Is it good? I have some waiting for me, so hopefully it's really good. As good as you made it sound. Uh, wonderful worship tonight. Beautiful worship. Uh, man. It's, it's been a, a tough transition, you know, with, with Foss leaving. Foss is amazing. And uh, my wife is just incredible. Uh, I don't know if you guys know that, but she's the one uh, leading everything now. And uh, she, she's the boss at home, and she's the boss here too now for me. But uh, just a, a phenomenal job tonight. I was listening to them practice just a little bit last night at our house. And uh, it was, a, it was a, a great time. I was putting the baby to bed while they were practicing. And fortunately, he cried himself to sleep and I could go to the men's event we had. But um, I, I don't even know if you guys know this, but on Sunday, she was sick. And uh, her nose is all red and all clogged up. And then at like 7.30, 7.45, our drummer uh, was like, I'm in Long Beach. And we're like, uh, he's like, I won't be there. <laughs> and so we just had to change everything up and go on the fly and follow her lead and just trust God. And, and that's what, what it's all about. So, uh, so I'm, I'm just really blessed to have a powerhouse wife like that. Amen. Enough about that, enough being sappy. Uh, but let's uh, start with some table talk tonight. Talk to the people around you, with, answer one question. This is a two-part table talk tonight. The first part is this, address the following question. What makes a Christian a Christian? And then I'll interrupt you in about a minute and a half, two, two minutes or so. What you're going to do, there are uh, index cards on the table. If you don't have enough at your table, just steal some from somebody else or grab it from a different table. And then take a moment to write out your own statement of faith. Your own statement of faith. Basically, what do you believe and why? But don't share it with everyone else just yet. All right? So go ahead on that first question. Ready? Go. So tonight, you guys ready? You guys, you guys good? All right. Tonight in the Gospel of John, we are going to come across a bold statement of faith by a bold woman of faith. Now to recap, to bring us up to speed, where are we at in the Gospel of John? Let me fill you in. Jesus' dear friend Lazarus is sick. And in the ancient world, sickness often meant death. Jesus receives a memo from his dear friends Mary and Martha, who happen to be Lazarus's sisters, and they tell Jesus that Lazarus is sick, so come quick. Jesus, he should probably go to Lazarus. He should probably go and, and see him or heal him. He's only two miles away, after all. But somehow Jesus knows that Lazarus is dead. He even voices this to his disciples. And Jesus, he waits around two more days before deciding to go see Lazarus. But he's decided to go see Lazarus and he and the disciples depart. So if you're able to stand, I'll invite you to stand. We'll read from John chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. 
It says when Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. That's where we're going to stop right there. Sorry. <laughs> like cliffhanger right there. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity to examine your word, to hear from you. Even in the middle of this tragedy we see in scripture, Lord, we may be living right in the middle of tragedy ourselves. Give us words to speak and thoughts to think when it comes to that. But Lord, tonight we just want to hear from you. We love you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. So verse 17 begins. Follow along on the screen or in your Bibles. Verse 17, when Jesus arrived at Bethany after his two-day delay, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. So Jesus was right. Lazarus was, in fact, dead. Lazarus has been dead for four days. Now, according to Jewish popular belief in this day and age, at this time of Jesus, the soul, this was the popular opinion of the day, that the soul would hover above the body in the tomb for a period of three days. And after the third day, when the soul sees that the color of the face of this corpse has changed, the soul would then leave the body for good. So the four-day period brings a finality to the death. The period that, that Lazarus has been dead, it means he's really dead. But I, I won't spill the beans. You might know how the story ends. I think everyone might know. But, but I think that Jesus' two-day delay here, I think his two-day delay actually sets up Lazarus to be dead for four days. And I think that's precisely for this reason that a four-day stay in the tomb means the finality of the death. Or does it? We will see. Verses 18 through 19, Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, about two miles to be precise. And many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. As in any event of death or, or loss, a, a crowd gathers at the home to lend support, also to, to just mourn. Just like today, people suffocate you with hugs and flowers and well wishes and condolences and food, right? There's always so much food, but the problem is no one's hungry, you know, because you've just experienced this tremendous loss. No one's hungry, so you save it, you store it, you freeze it. Well, in this first century context here, it was common for the people after they ex had experienced loss that they would stay put in the home for seven days. For this period of seven days, they wouldn't go anywhere except to maybe the tomb to go and grieve over the deceased person. On Mother's Day of this year, a friend of mine lost his younger brother, his only brother. And this is what the, the Birmingham, Alabama news article read the following. Bullet-riddled body found in Birmingham Alley. 
His dad was out here just a couple of weeks ago visiting, and uh, he was staying with my in-laws, their uh, family friend. They've actually sent uh, Zeke uh, a couple of, of outfits. They've, they've done, that, done that twice already, and there we were. We are in the, the living room. We're rehearsing, Tara, myself, and her mom. It was before we all played worship together on a Sunday. And we're there practicing, and, and our baby Zeke is squirming there on the floor. And all of a sudden, I see this dad walk in and get down on his hands and knees, and he starts to play with Zeke. And, man, I, I like, almost lost it there. You know, just overcome with emotion and had, you know, starting getting choked up. Because what I'm seeing is this dad who has just lost his son, this is probably how he always saw his son, Right? And it was just so difficult to see that, but also so heartwarming, too, because I know it was a good experience for him to have that. And he's holding Zeke and playing with him and all this stuff. And, and then uh, sometime later, uh, we have a, a good talk about the case and uh, about faith and about fond memories. But what's always a difficult challenge is... How do you talk to someone who's experiencing tremendous loss like this? I want to ask you guys. Talk to the people around you at your table and address the following question. How do you talk to someone who is experiencing tremendous loss? Ready, go. All right, let's finish the thought and we'll bring it back together here. If I could, I would like to uh, just suggest a couple of things that, that might help you as you talk to people who experience loss because that's part of being human, you know, and that's part of being a Christian is, is to be someone who is able to support and uplift. And you probably already do all of these things, but it might be a, a good reminder. Maybe there's something that, that you haven't tried before. But uh, how to talk to someone who is experiencing tremendous loss. The first thing is first... Do no harm. You can follow along. We've got them all listed for you on the screen. Uh, first, do no harm. When you're talking to someone who's just experienced loss, don't make it about you. Don't tell them what they should do or shouldn't have done. Or, you know, if you didn't like the person, don't, don't, don't bring up all of the dirty laundry and all that stuff. First, first, do no harm. Secondly, be a person who prays. That means pray for the person and the family and the people who are experiencing the, the gaping wound from this loss. But then also pray to God, how should I react, act, function? How, what, what should I do? Pray for the entire situation. Uh, thirdly, be a listening ear. You know, one thing that I used to coach a lot of soccer, and, and one of the things we would tell the kids is you have two ears and one mouth. That means you should listen twice as much as you speak. And when it comes to this, dealing with someone who's experiencing tremendous loss, we need to be good, excellent listeners. Another thing is be actively present, ready to help with any task. Don't, don't give the line like, well, let me know what you want me to do, or if there's anything I can do, just let me know. No, go wash the dishes, go mow the lawn, go do something, be actively present, ready to do something for those who are experiencing this. Uh, then also be a thoughtful question asker. There's a good time to ask questions, but make sure you're asking the right question in a sensitive way and at the right time. 
And the last thing I'll say is be an empathizer. That means try as hard as you possibly can to step into their world, to step into their world, to to grasp at least just a sliver of the pain that they're going through so that you can maybe better understand how you can help. I don't know if you've ever heard of of the book uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. If you have kids in high school, uh, maybe you've forced them to read it or, you know, helped them to read it. Uh, Harper Lee wrote this book. It's a a phenomenal book, but uh, there's this quote in there that Atticus Finch says to Scout, and I think it's really fitting. It, It says, you never really understand a person until you consider things from their point of view until you climb into their skin and walk around in it. Well, verse 17 through 20 continues. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but... Mary stayed in the house. Now, nothing against Mary. Maybe she was caught up in conversation or she was too emotionally distraught to get up and and leave the house. But this actually does show the difference within their character traits, within their personalities. We see a difference between Martha and Mary. Martha went to meet Jesus while Mary stayed in the house. It's similar to the incident back in Luke chapter 10 when Martha busied herself with all of the household duties, with all the hospitality and the responsibility. Mary just stayed put at Jesus' feet. Martha here, in a similar way, keeps busy. Maybe she just wanted some fresh air, but she busies herself by going to greet Jesus. Verse 21 through 22, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. That sounds like blaming, but it also sounds like faith at the same time. It sounds like blaming faith. I have faith, Jesus, that you could have healed my brother, but you you didn't show up. You weren't here in time. Verse 22 continues, though, but even now... I know that God will give you whatever you ask. But surely not raising the dead. That that wouldn't have crossed her purview. That, that, That wouldn't have been in her mind. But in other words, Martha's statement here is like a confession of her continuing faith. As if she's saying something like, I still believe in you, Jesus, even though you weren't here in time to help my brother. I still have faith. Verse 23, Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Can you you just imagine Martha hearing these words? Her, Her face just contorted with confusion. The furrowed brows, the cocked neck, lips parted, expressionless. Her ear bent like, did I hear you right, Jesus? Your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, verse 24, he will rise again when everyone else rises at the last day. Here, Martha misunderstands what Jesus is saying, apparently takes this this comment that your brother will rise again, these words as some kind of well-wishing condolence. But 
Okay, yeah, thanks, Jesus, for the kind words. I know you mean well, but, but Jesus, he's not feeding her. He's not feeding her a line here. Yes, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. Jesus isn't, isn't feeding her a line by saying your brother will rise again. It's not like he's in a better place. Or God loved him so much that he took him. No, Jesus isn't saying anything like that. And so he continues in verse 25 and 26. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me, even after dying, even uh, anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord. She told him, I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. That is quite a faith statement there on Martha's part. So go ahead and share with your group your faith statement. Go ahead, take a moment, do some table talk. Share with your group your statement of faith that you wrote down earlier this evening. All right, let's bring it back together. Hopefully you uh, had some statements that were as bold as Martha there. But let's talk a little bit more about what she has said in her statement of faith. Martha holds fast to some foundational elements of faith here. Martha believes that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. She believes this by her yes, Lord, response. She believes that anyone who believes in Jesus will live even after dying. That's what she believes. She believes that everyone who lives in Jesus and believes in Jesus will never, ever die. The Greek actually will say something a little bit different that makes it a little clearer, I think. The Greek says that they will never die forever. Uh, Everyone who lives in Jesus will It lives in Jesus and believes in Jesus will never die forever. She also believes that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the Savior, the Christ. That Jesus is the Son of God who has come into the world from God. You know, I think that that we followers of Jesus today, we need this. We need this. We need a good dose of faith and reason together. You know, we need to know why we believe the things that we believe. It's not a a new concept, but we need to know why we believe the things that we believe, or else we don't know why we believe the things we believe. You may say, like, oh, well, it's, it's because I feel it. I feel it, you know? It makes me feel good, so I know that it's true. That's great. But have you, ever, uh, have you ever tried using WebMD before? You know what WebMD is, right? That a website where you can convince yourself that you have a terminal illness. You click on WebMD, you know, you go to its website, Symptom Checker, and it gives you, you two option, or options, you know, to list your common symptoms. You select it. Well, you know, I, I kind of feel like nauseous. Okay, I feel feverish. Yeah, I, I feel a bit dizzy too, you know, Uh, uh, fatigue, yeah, I feel that, Uh, diarrhea, you know. There are six different, I checked it today, there are six different diarrhea options to select how I might feel. I'm like, man, I thought there was just like one, but 
six different ways when it comes to, to diarrhea, how you might feel. And so you, okay, okay, you click, continue, click, continue, you go forward. And the results say, I'm pregnant. I've got West Nile virus or I've got cancer. Every, every you know, result on WebMD is cancer, you know, just to spread a wide net, I guess. But in a matter of clicks, my feels, all of the things I'm feeling have brought me to results that I don't really know what to think of. Same goes with our faith. If I have a faith that's only built on feels and how I feel, how I feel when I come to church, how I feel when I do devotions, how I feel when I worship, If I have a faith that's only built on feels, I could feel myself right out of faith in a heartbeat. But my faith needs to be more than feels. Feels are good, and they're certainly a part of the faith. But I also need a good dose of reason to know why I believe the things I believe. Martha She doesn't just believe the things that she believes because of how she feels. If that were the case, she probably wouldn't be delivering a a statement of faith like she is here. I mean, her brother's dead after all. Martha has every reason to give up on faith if it were according to how she feels. But her faith is not built on feelings. She believes on the reasoning and the word and the actions of Jesus. Even now, in the face of her brother Lazarus' death, Martha's confidence in Jesus is undiminished. Verses 28 through 31, Then she returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, The teacher is here and wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha had met him. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep. So they followed her there. So Mary, she sets out to Jesus. And here comes the entourage with her. The dark cloud of people mourning gusts in. Verse 32, when Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you would have been here, my brother would not have died. The same exact phrase, word for word. Same exact phrase, the same blaming faith response as Martha. Verse 33 says, when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger Welled up in him. The Greek is embrimaomai, and it means to be enraged like a snorting, angry horse. A snorting, angry horse. And he was deeply troubled, tarasso, emotionally agitated. Jesus is greatly disturbed and deeply moved in this moment, upset and enraged, angry like a snorting horse. But why? Why is Jesus so enraged? Why is he angry, emotionally agitated like an angry, snorting horse? Where is his anger directed? Is it, is it directed at Mary? Or is it directed at this crowd of people mourning? I don't, I don't think so. 
I think he's angry at the pain that death causes in human life. He's angry because he finds himself face to face with the manifestation of the enemy's kingdom of evil. That is, sin and death. Verse 34, where have you put him? He asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. Now that phrase, come and see, is a huge, huge literary marker within the Gospel of John. You see it in a couple of different places that are very notable. But, but this is a, a meaning of come and enter and experience. And you betcha, Jesus is going to come and enter and experience here. He's bringing a fury and a vengeance that's locked and loaded, targeted at grief, loss, death, and dying. And that's what I love about God. That's what I love about God. He's coming to make things right, to change the way things are going. But verse 35, then Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible right there for your trivia. Uh, the table talk, one more table talk tonight. Reread John 11. This means you're going to have to open the Bible. And you have to read the words. I know I'm asking so much of you guys tonight. Open the Bible, read John 11, 29 through 35, and discuss a simple question. Why does Jesus weep? Go ahead. All right, let's bring it back together one more time tonight. I think it's important to know... Um, that there's a difference between the weeping of Jesus here and the weeping that you read about in verse 33, the weeping among the women. How do I know this? It's, it's just because you look at the Greek text and it's different. If we all knew ancient Koine Greek, we would be able to decipher this. The, the Greek word used here for Jesus's weeping is edakrusin. It's different than the one used to describe this weeping, wailing, moaning cries of lament of Mary and the mourners. In verse 33, it simply means to shed tears. Kind of like a quiet sense of grief. Maybe a, a personal sense of grief. But, but why did Jesus do this? Why does he weep? I'll tell you first off that he's not crying over Lazarus. Because if you know the end of the story, you know something happens with Lazarus. So there's no point in shedding tears over, over that. Well, he's weeping, I think, because of the pain that death causes in human life. He's weeping over the effects of sin and death and the realm of Satan. He's weeping because it's the natural complement to the, the emotion, the, the expression of anger that had preceded this. He's weeping because of compassion for fallen humanity. He's weeping because he's human. We just heard a couple of verses earlier, Mary testifying to his divinity that Jesus is God. Here we also see that Jesus is human, 100% God and 100% human. His weeping testifies to that. Maybe he's weeping at the tomb of Lazarus because there's also a tomb nearby that awaits him. And that tomb, it's going to cost him a lot to get there. It's going to cost him everything, bearing the sin of the world. That's heavy. That's worth a few tears for sure. Well, verses 36 and 37, the people who were standing nearby said, See how much he loved him. But some said, This man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? 
The onlookers, they see Jesus' angry tears here, and they think that, well, this is evidence for his great love of Lazarus, and this is also evidence of his own grief over his apparent lack of ability to keep Lazarus from dying. Obviously, their interpretation of Jesus' angry tears is unbelief and ignorance on the part of the people. There's a man by the name of Nicholas Wolterstorff, and he's a, a theology professor at Yale University, and he lost a son, his 25-year-old son, in a tragic uh, climbing accident in Austria. And in his grief, he expressed the following, death is awful, demonic. We cannot live at peace with death. And these words have, you know, kind of resounded in my life. You know, a lot of times we, we do a lot of funerals and memorial services as pastors, and I, I think we've, you know, tried to help people through that and where we, you know, make it feel like it's just, yeah, it's a part of life and it's, you know, it's, it's the end of your life and it's tragic and all of this stuff. And, and sometimes we maybe lose this idea that death is awful, actually, that it's demonic. We cannot live at peace with death because when we really think about it, death is actually not natural. I mean, it's not God's intention. And we cannot live at peace with death because it is the opposite of the fullness of life. It's the breaking apart of wholeness. It's the extinguishing of what God brought into existence and while we all must face death, the deaths of our mortal bodies, it's not God's intention because we were originally created without the plan of death. And although death has been introduced into our world, Scripture reveals to us that God is life. And the death of our mortal bodies is not the end. To believe that death is natural and acceptable is actually backwards. It's an anti-God state of mind. If God is the God of life, then that means that God is not the God of death. So how will Jesus, the God of life, not the God of death, deal with this death of Lazarus? How will Jesus, this God of life, deal with the naysayers and their ignorant unbelief? How will the religious authorities respond to Jesus, the God of life? Well, you've got to come back next week and see. Got to come back. And next week we will close up this story. I know these last two weeks have just been doom and gloom and death. <laughs> but next week, I don't want to spill the beans it ends well. But takeaway tonight. Takeaway is the following. Jesus is the God of life. Jesus is the God of life. And despite our feelings, despite what might be going on in your life, despite what anyone has ever told you, his love, his grace, his truth, and his faithfulness remains unchanged forever. Forever. And then you're challenged tonight. 
Your challenge tonight is this. Reach out to someone who's in grief. You might not have to look that far. I think we all can figure out somebody who's going through a hard time and reach out to them. Speak to them, pray for them, love them, serve, whatever it is. And you may say, well, that's, that's me. I'm grieving right now. I'm experiencing loss. Tell somebody so they can help. And then secondly, keep pursuing to know why you believe the things you believe. This should never be a, a pursuit that ends with us. It should never be a, a stopping point where we say, oh, I got it. I know who God is, and I know what I believe, and that settles it. That's great. But we need to keep on learning, keep on growing, keep on learning, because God is, is endless. And the pursuit of knowing and loving God, it's an adventure, and it's exciting. So let's not grow weary in doing good. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I know that this is some tough stuff to talk about. But we don't just talk about the easy, feel-good stuff. Because you didn't. And your word is full of people who are going through struggles. I pray for the people in here tonight who are grieving, experiencing loss or trial, or hardship that is just beyond their own ability. I pray, Lord, that we as a church would surround these individuals. I pray, Lord, that we as a church would reach out to other people in our lives who are struggling and suffering, and that we can embrace them with love and kindness and hope and peace that you only, the God of life, can give. We love you. And we praise you and we thank you for the hope of eternal life, which is always on our minds. In Jesus' name, amen.